Let me begin by saying a deep thank you to you, the church. It's spring break, which means that many of our people are scattered across Europe and and elsewhere, and so we're a little smaller in our numbers of, of gathering, and yet this has been an amazing, amazing week where so many of you have stepped up with our Passover celebration, with Good Friday service, with all the extra rehearsals, with the outreach at Winchester Square um, yesterday. Thank you, church. It is a joy to see the way you honor the Lord in participating, in helping, in just being the church. And so we want you to know how much we deeply love and appreciate you. Well, we've been in a series um, called Backstory that's looking at some of the parables of Jesus and the stories that lie behind them. And this may seem like a slightly unusual text for uh, an Easter Sunday, but I want to deal with the subject that Jesus has as part of the backstory um, within this parable. He gives us a great deal of information about after death. And ultimately, the hope of the resurrection, the assurance that we have because we believe full, firmly that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead is that there is hope. Death is not the end. 4,000 years ago, in one of the earliest books ever written, a man by the name of Job asks what is perhaps the greatest question to all humanity. He says, if someone dies, will they live again? There's no greater question that you and I want to know the answer to than that. Is there something after death? If so, what is it? What is it like? How do I experience it? What choices do I need to make? What difference does how I live today and what I believe today make on that event? The answer that Job found was this. All my days of hard service or struggling, the difficulties of life, I will wait for my renewal, my resurrection to come. Job chose to put his trust in God, and it made all the difference in his life. But from the very beginning, the question of what's after death has been that ultimate question that all people wrestle with. And there are a lot of different philosophies about death and what happens afterwards. Here in the Czech Republic, because it's predominantly an atheist or agnostic country, um, most of the people or many of the people would believe in annihilation, which means You die, you're you're no different than an animal. Once the chemicals stop working in your body, life ceases and there is nothing more. You end. Annihilation. We are only chemical compounds put together by chance, and when the body dies, we cease to exist. Others believe firmly in reincarnation. It's a do-over. You have chance after chance, and maybe eventually you'll get it right, whatever that means. This view claims that life happens over and over again in a kind of endless recycling, 
until one mystically arrives or reaches nirvana. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of agreement on how that occurs. One of the, one of the wonderful things that happens in Prague is you can get into great dialogues and discussions with people. Even though many don't believe in God, they, they like and enjoy having spiritual conversations. And um, not too long ago, Becky and I were, were in a cab, and that's always an adventure anyway. And the, and the driver was, was very friendly and had lots to say, and he found out that we were from the United States, and so he had all kinds of questions about that. And then he wanted to tell us all about his previous lives um, that he had experienced, and he really didn't have any evidence of those lives, but he wanted to tell all about it. And when he found out that we were from the United States, um, and that we were from the West, which is Colorado, and if, if you are familiar with the geography of the United States, you know that it's quite a long ways to the place he was really hoping we were from, which was California. Um, but, you know, to him it was, he'd never been there, so it was close. What he was really hoping for was that somehow Becky and I had a connection to Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> because he was convinced that part of his destiny was um, connected to Mr. Stallone, to Rambo, or uh, Rocky Balboa, whichever character you want to, per, you want to pick, and that he, he could just get to the United States and make this connection and see face-to-face to Sylvester Stallone, he would reach the next level. Now, I have no idea where he came up with that idea, but trust me, he was convinced it was real. Reincarnation. And a little Rambo thrown in just for fun. Many people have a mixed view of after death. What they do is they make their view of after death fit their own desires and wants. They'll believe that there is an afterlife, that there is a heaven, and of course I'm going there because I'm a pretty good person. There may or may not be a hell, um, but it's reserved for people who are farther down than I am. And it's somewhat random as to what makes the distinction between the two. What is certain, however, is that death waits for all of us. The Bible puts it this way and gives us a very direct answer to two of those views I just mentioned. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, no reincarnation, no do-over, once. This life is our one opportunity. And then it goes on to say, and after that comes the judgment. In other words, it's not annihilation. There is an after death. But it goes on to give us this hope. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, which is what he did on the cross, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, just like the answer Job gave 4,000 years ago. So ultimately, we need to begin asking this question. Who do we want to trust when it comes to after death, and all of the questions that we ponder in our hearts about what that's like. Who can we really rely on 
there are a multitude of books out on near-death experiences. Um, and they deal with all kinds of ideas and concepts. But there's something that all of them have in common that is limiting, very limiting to what they say. Some of them may have had genuine experiences, I don't know, but there's a distinction between what is recorded in these near-death experiences and what we see in the Scripture. And that distinction is this. There's a huge difference between clinical death when the heart stops beating and um, you're no longer breathing, and biological death when the cells themselves die. As an emergency medical technician, I witnessed and experienced resuscitation. People who were clinically dead, who through CPR and through a defibrillator were brought back to life. But they were only clinically dead. They were resuscitated, not resurrected. And every near-death experience deals with that brief moment between dying clinically and being resuscitated, with the exception of what we have in the Scripture. Because Jesus Christ was biologically dead, fully dead, three days dead. He was not resuscitated. He did not swoon. God brought life back into his body, which was completely biologically dead. And he has victory over death. So if we want to explore who we can really trust, there is one person who conquered death. He is the author and giver of life, and he is the one who knows all when it comes to what life is like after death. Jesus Christ willingly gave up his life spirit, and his body died due to the impact of the severe scourging, the beating, and the crucifixion. He was fully dead. It was proven so when the spear pierced his side and went into the pericardium and out came both water and blood showing that death had occurred. There was pulmonary edema that had surrounded his heart and had constricted it and allowed it to no longer beat. And understand that we have absolute evidence that he was dead because professional executioners checked his body to see if there was a need to break his legs and the evidence was overwhelming that he was already dead. The Roman soldiers who did crucifixion day after day after day knew what biological death looked like. There was no mistake. Jesus rose from the grave, but he also brought others back to life. The scriptures tell us that he raised the son of the widow of Nain in Luke 7, verses 11 through 15. Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. Again, both of them were biologically dead. He raised his friend Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, from the dead after he'd been dead for four days. Each of these resurrections had multiple witnesses. 
In fact, there was such a stir over the resurrection of Lazarus that the religious leaders of the day were so threatened by this obvious miracle that could not be explained by anything other than God put together a plot to kill Jesus and to kill Lazarus again. I've always thought, you know, it seems like a really great thing to to be Lazarus, to be raised from the dead. I mean, how amazing is that? Until you get to the point where you realize, I gotta die again. It's like, I I was already there. Just let me go. That's part of my DNR, in case any of you want to know that. Just let me go. Do not resuscitate, for those of you who aren't familiar with that. So there's one expert that I believe we should pay attention to, and that is Jesus. Preston's already said this this morning so well. Jesus conquered death. And let me give you just some evidence that helps us really rest assured on that truth before we explore this passage. The evidence of Jesus' expertise that he truly is the one who knows about after death. The evidence that he has risen again, he experienced the fullness of death, but has risen again, begins in the empty tomb, a sealed tomb guarded by a company of professional soldiers is empty. Remember, Jesus was put to death by the high court, the supreme court of Israel, the Sanhedrin. All they had to do to prove that the resurrection did not happen was produce a body that they themselves had secured and hired soldiers to make sure no one took the body. An official government seal was placed upon that tomb. To break that seal would have been a death penalty on anyone who made the attempt. But Jesus wasn't there. The body that they saw placed and sealed in a tomb, all that was left was the grave clothes. There are secular writers who've given testimony about Jesus, about his life, about the the impact he had on other people, um, the belief in the resurrection, and the accounts surrounding it. We have the witness of Tacitus, of Pliny the Younger, of Flavius Josephus. We have the testimony of the Babylonian Talmud, which is a Jewish document, and Lucian of Samosota. All of these point to the historical fact of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. We have the testimony of the women at the tomb. God, in his wisdom, chose those who were often overlooked when it came to their testimony in the culture of that day and chose them to be the first witnesses. And what's amazing is that when they tell the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead, they're all skeptical like so many people today. But they stuck to their story. They said it was true. And as they began, the disciples began to open their hearts and look, they discovered that he truly was risen from the dead. We have the evidence of the courage of the disciples who just hours before had run away and denied Jesus Christ. After the crucifixion, Jesus' apostles, his disciples locked themselves in, in, in rooms and hid. 
And yet these same fearful men then boldly go out and proclaim his resurrection after they encounter Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And their boldness is so incredible, it impresses the religious leaders, even the Sanhedrin, as John and Peter appear before that court. What changed them? They had an encounter with the risen Lord. The scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that Jesus was seen by over 500 witnesses at once. It wasn't just a few people. His resurrection is a proven fact. Maybe one of the greatest evidences that he rose from the dead is the transformation that happens to his own half-brothers, James and Jude. I don't know about you, but um, amongst my siblings and our children as siblings, they love each other, but if one of them was to make a claim that they were something better than the others, there would, you would be met with great skepticism. It's no different for Jesus. James and Jude, all up, in t- up until the resurrection, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But the resurrection so changed their understanding that James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and ultimately died as a martyr. He was transformed by the absolute proof that Jesus rose from the dead. The same is true of the conversion of Saul the persecutor into Paul the apostle. And many, hundreds, perhaps thousands of early Christians died in the Roman arena and in prisons for their faith because they believed in the resurrection. The evidence is real. So Jesus is the authority on after death. He experienced it and he came back. And so whatever he says about it, we need to pay attention to. This is not just hearsay. This is reality. So let's look at this passage and and understand that this passage in, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is not a theological treatment on life after death. It is a story about the condition of the heart and the difference that the condition of our heart makes on our destiny. That's the point he's making. However, there is a backstory. He gives us a great deal of information that helps us understand what life is like, what it what the experience is after death, both for the believer and those who reject God themselves. To understand this, though, we need to to back up just a few verses to verses 14 and 15 in Luke chapter 16 and see the context that this is set in. Jesus is speaking, and he's surrounded by a bunch of religious leaders who are self-righteous. They're trusting in their own goodness and their own ability, and their own resources, because many of these were very rich individuals, they were trusting in their riches and their goodness to make them right with God. Look what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. This is Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. 
For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This story is about the condition of the hearts of people. Our heart, our beliefs, and the actions that are produced out of that heart determines what happens next. Understand that is absolutely essential to seeing this parable. Otherwise, we could come away with the idea that if you're poor in this life, you're going to be rich in heaven. If you're rich in this life, you're going to spend eternity in hell. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the condition of a heart. Now let's begin to look at the parable. Verses 19 through 21. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Every day he sat at the cruise ship table and had the best buffet you could imagine. Life was good for the rich man. And that's why he's not given a name like, like Lazarus is. He's, it's given a characterization. It's like, this is what he lived for. He lived for his pleasure and his comforts. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The actions of the rich man were all about himself. He lived for comfort. He was consumed by material things. He would have daily walked right past Lazarus and never helped him, never acknowledged his presence. Even though, as we'll see later in the story, he knew him. He even knew his name. Lazarus' difficulties meant absolutely nothing to the rich man because of the condition of his heart. Lazarus suffered greatly, but his hope was not in the comforts of this world. His hope was in God. And the reason that I know that is because Jesus is very specific about the name that he gives to the person in the story. When he calls him Lazarus, the name Lazarus means God is my help. God is my hope. So you have the rich man who's trusting in his own goodness, who's wealthy beyond belief, and the poor man who's trusting in the help of God. His heart is focused on God's rescue, not what he can do for himself, because clearly he's incapable. It is a picture, ultimately, of every one of us. We can't save ourselves. We need God's help. We needed Jesus Christ to rescue us with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment to bring us back from where sin had taken us. Jesus' purpose in this story is to show people that if you trust in your own goodness, you will not be saved. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot be religious enough because it's not about a religion. You can't go to church enough times. You can't say enough prayers. You can't give enough money. You can't do anything to earn it on your own. He's using this parable to reveal the condition of the heart because one evidence of trusting in God rather than in your own goodness is revealed in how we love and treat others. Our actions reveal our heart. But here in the midst of this, Jesus also gives us the backstory and some details on what happens after death. 
He's not giving us a step-by-step understanding, but Jesus is the expert on after death, and the information shown in his story gives us a glimpse into the realities of after death. Let's look at what happens in verses 22 and 24. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flame. Now, what Jesus is referring to here, um, when it comes to, to Hades, the, the Hebrew word would be Sheol, and we, we read that oftentimes, especially in the Psalms. And, uh, but the Greek word is Hades, and the New Testament is written in, in Greek, and so it's, it's the Greek translation of Sheol. And the Hebrew understanding of Sheol, the, the place of the afterlife, had two areas, one of which was called paradise or Abraham's side, because Abraham is the father of faith. And so therefore, um, he is a, a central character that helps to identify the person with a personal relationship with God. Just as Abraham was the friend of God, and by faith he was justified because of his relationship with God, he is there amongst those who are righteous, those who believed in God. The other side of Sheol um, was a place of torment for those who had rejected God. They weren't relying on God's help. They were relying on their own resources. The rich man ends up in the bad place, and Lazarus ends up in paradise. But there's some observations that should give us some comfort that we discover from this story, the backstory that's here. The first one we want to ask is, what happens to us right after we die? Because this is telling us this, the story. It's giving us some details that allows us to, to, to peek past the curtain of death and see what happens. One of the first things that's, that's, that's important to recognize is, this is the immediate state. It is not after the bodily rec- resurrection. This is what's happening immediately after they die. The resurrection comes later, but there's some things that are really important for us to see. First of all, we discover that consciousness continues. Some people will teach what's called soul sleep, but there's not really biblical evidence for that. The scripture talks about sleep, but it always refers to the body, to the physical part of us, not to our spirits. There is consciousness. There is an awareness. You don't just, go, you don't just fuzz out and go blank at death. We see that Lazarus and the rich man have an awareness of what's going on. Consciousness continues. The rich man is able to speak. He communicates. He's fully aware, so aware of what's happening that he's in agony. Secondly, we discover personal knowledge continues. The rich man knows Lazarus. He recognizes him. Death does not change what we know. Our personalities will go on with the same information that we have today. 
For the believer in Christ, the one thing that radically changes is our desire for sin. Our personality is purified and cleansed of all sin because that is left behind in the grave. We will be completely free to be the person God created and saved us to be. You will become that masterpiece that Jesus designed. And your relationship with everyone else will be so enriched because sin is no longer a limitation in our connectedness to God and to one another. That's why, think about it. Lazarus on earth was a nobody. But where is he here? When it says he's at Abraham's side, it's the same word picture as the apostle John who refers to him constantly as the disciple that Jesus loved, leaning up against Jesus like at the Last Supper. It's the same picture. Lazarus and Abraham are together as equals, enjoying the pleasures. And the picture here is that of a banquet, of a feast. It's beautiful. Personal knowledge continues. But it also increases. Because what we discover is that you'll be fully known. And that who you are becomes known. The rich man also knows Abraham, someone who lived Thousands of years before him, and yet he recognizes him for who he is. A man he never met, he knows him. This is illustrated for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known." We will understand who we are, our true identity in Christ. We won't know everything there is to know uh, because there will be far more for us to continually discover about God and about one another, but we will see each other for who they really are. The identity crises that we have in this life are wiped away. You will be absolutely secure in who God made you to be. And others will see you with the value, the eternal, immeasurable value that God places upon your life. So valuable, he gave up his son for you. Isn't that assuring? You know, the problem is, in our minds, we tend to rank people. We tend to compare ourselves and compete with one another But in Christ, we can be fully who God made us to be and not have any competition with others. We can allow them to be fully who they are. That's why when we practice biblical unity in the church and we promote and encourage and build up others, we become freer to be who God made us and to be able to bless others so that they become who God created them to be. And that reaches its consummation, its fulfillment in the presence of the Lord. Let's look on. Verses 24 and 28. This is again the rich man. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now look at his next statement. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. This tells us that personal love continues. Even a self-focused man like the rich man when he experiences the reality of being separated from God and from his goodness, his desire is for his own comfort, just a small portion, but his even greater desire is that no one else, no one that he loved or cared about, experiences what he is experiencing at this moment. So this gives us absolute assurance that our personal love continues. You will not forget your loved ones. Those um, who have loved ones who've died or are now with the Lord, yes, they think about you. If the, if the rich man who didn't believe God is concerned about the affairs of his brothers, don't you think that those who are with the Lord who are your relatives, your friends, your loved ones are concerned about you? The rich man cares about his brothers, but notice there's not repentance on his part. He's past that point. He wants to comfort, have comfort from his thirst, but he understands that he is where he deserves. And he does not want his brothers to face the same fate. He is aware of the spiritual condition of his brothers, even though he is now dead. Even though he was in torment and an unbeliever, he's deeply concerned. This helps us be assured that love continues. What is more, again, this is before the resurrection, we discover that our physical senses continue even before the resurrection of the body. Lazarus is experiencing great blessing. His life is filled with joys, both spiritual and tangible. The rich man is experiencing pain. He's experiencing the sensation of thirst, of heat, of torment. But neither one has their physical body as yet. Here's some more hope. Verse 22, back up to that. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And there's a contrast that Jesus uses in the story. He says the rich man died and was buried. He had a funeral. It was probably an amazing sight. All his brothers would have been there. All the people that regularly came to his house for the feast would have been there. It would have been amazing from an earthly viewpoint. Lazarus, 
Chances are there weren't very many there except for the friends that carried him every day and placed him in the place where he might possibly receive some help at the gate of the rich man. But what, ha- what does it say happened to Lazarus? He was carried to Abraham's side by the angels. It was personal and intimate. For the true believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The spirit of a person um, is instantly with God. The body awaits the resurrection of the dead at the return of Jesus Christ, as we find out in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 8, and first, or Philippians 1, 23. For the believer, and, and if you've got your notes there, I have become increasingly plagued by autocorrect. I hate autocorrect because the words I like to use, it doesn't like. I mean, maybe it's just trying to teach me to use better words, but I really didn't write what it says in your notes. It says in your notes, for the believer, death ashes. That is not the right word. It's ushers. But for some reason, I should have just wrote brings. Sorry. Cross out ashes and puts, put brings you. Okay? That, please correct that. For the believer, death brings us or ushers you into indescribable joy together with others in the presence of the Lord. That's what Jesus meant when he said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That very moment after death. And the scriptures tell us angels attend the death of believer. There's a promise in Psalm 48 that's only included in in some of the, the versions, the translations. You'll read it in the King James Version. In Psalm 48, verse 14, uh, it says, our God... um, is our God forever and ever. He will guide us beyond death. It's a beautiful promise. Most versions just say he will guide us forever and ever, and it's simply implied, but in some versions, it's very specific. He will guide us beyond or over death. At the resurrection of believers, the physical body will be renewed, glorified, and then reunited with the, with the soul, with the spirit. And, and we read about this in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 at the resurrection. But for those who do not receive Jesus Christ, death means a very different destiny. And so we have some comfort that comes, some questions that we have are answered. And if you have other questions, I mean, this, this passage only deals with a few things. Feel free to email me, and I'll make sure that either Tom or Preston answers all your questions on those um, and, and, and you'll discover new things. But if you have questions about death, do email me about what it's like because the scripture has, a, has quite a bit to say about it. It's not exhaustive, but it has quite a bit to say. But there's some cautions from after death. There's some warnings from Jesus' story about after death. We read about them already, the experience of the rich man Hell is the second death, and it is a reality that no one wants to face. The rich man desperately wants his brothers to turn to God, to make a totally different decision with their heart than what he made. Now, many would ask this question, how could a loving God ever send someone to torment or to hell? 
We may not like the picture. It's uncomfortable. But remember, Jesus Christ is the absolute authority. And so I need to pay attention to what he's saying, what he's describing here, and not take it lightly. It is not popular to talk about this. It's uncomfortable. But I don't want you to be like the rich man's brothers and not have a warning that the reality is far worse than you can imagine. To reject God, to say, God, I don't need you, is to choose hell. Ultimately, if you choose to live a life independent of God, he will eventually give you exactly what you've asked for. But recognize the incredible danger of an existence without God. Because ultimately, whatever it actually is like, whatever, whether some of these things are descriptive and figurative, whether they're absolute physical realities, ultimately, hell is hell because God's presence, blessing, and grace is not there. If we could, even for a moment, imagine this life, without the blessings that God gives to us, the way that he sustains us, encourages us, and pours out goodness upon us, this life would have no joy. It would only be agony. And so if a person says, I can do without God, and God ultimately gives them what they have chosen, they will discover all the things that they took for granted were the good and perfect gifts that comes down from the Father above that he showers upon us in this life. To live without him is to live without his gifts, without his goodness, without his blessing, even upon those who do not know him and reject him. Furthermore, we discover there is no escape. Jesus said, besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Jesus describes a great divide that separates those who reject God and those who trust him. A divide that cannot be bridged after death because he has already provided the bridge Now, the bridge is the cross of Jesus Christ. He offers you and I a way to have an eternity in his presence with his blessings when we choose to trust not ourselves, but to trust him, to say, God is my help, Jesus Christ is my savior, and to call upon the name of the Lord. Say, Jesus, save me. That's what the scripture says is required is to have a change in our heart that simply says, Lord, I need you. Could God have made it any simpler for us to have life and assurance of eternal life after death? But it's a choice that you and I must make. So what will you do? Today, what will you do with Jesus Christ? What is the condition of your heart? Maybe you're here on this Easter Sunday because it's something you do occasionally and and you have an interest, but you've never trusted Jesus Christ. I implore you today, 
Let him change your heart. Give you life to him. Heed the warnings of the scripture. You don't want to experience life without him. And today is a day he has provided a bridge through his son Jesus Christ to offer you salvation. That is the good news, the great news. One last, no, I won't do that one. Let me close with a quote from Erwin Lutzer. This is a promise to us who've trusted in the Lord. On this side of the curtain of death, death is our enemy. But just beyond the curtain, the monster turns out to be our friend. The label death is still on the body, but the contents are eternal life. For one who is trusted in Jesus Christ, we don't need to be fearful of death. We can fear the transition of dying, but we have nothing to fear in death because our Savior has conquered sin and death and the grave. We have incredible assurance. He proved it when he rose from the grave. Therefore, we can take great confidence in what we read in Hebrews 9, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered to bear the sins, the judgment of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to fully save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That is our victory in Jesus Christ, because he is risen. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for the victory we have in Christ, for the assurance that we have because he died in our place. He lived the life I could never live. He died the death I deserved. He took our place and took upon himself all of the punishment that our sin desired so that we could have all of the joy his life gives. Lord, speak to hearts and lives here today. Those that have questions about death, Lord, bring assurance because of their trust in you that you have it firmly in hand. For those that do not know you, Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction into their heart? And Lord, let today be a day of incredible joy because they're delivered from fear. They're delivered from unknowing to having great assurance that they have life, eternal life, through Jesus Christ. Lord, would you do a work, we pray. In your great name, amen.